So um, welcome back to Africa's a Country Talk, or in short, AIAC Live. Oh, I keep saying AIAC Live, AIAC Talk. This is episode, this is episode 24. Can I redo that? This is episode 24. It's our third show of the new year. If, you, if you've forgotten who we are, I'm Sean Jacobs. I'm streaming from Brooklyn in New York City, where we had a snowstorm yesterday. Um, which is not what I imagined when I was a child that I would end up in a place like that. With me is Will Shoki. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are the co-presenters of this Africa as a Country's weekly discussion and interview show. Our producer is Antoinette Engel. She's in Cape Town, South Africa. Just before the show, I mean, Antoinette was boasting about how beautiful the weather is in Cape Town. In Johannesburg, it's been raining every single day, so it's not. it's, it's miserable here too. And just a reminder, as always, that if you missed our program last week, it was devoted to the life, thoughts, and legacy of the Pan-Africanist and revolutionary Amilcar Cabral. And he was assassinated in Conor Green, Guinea on the, on the 20th of January, 1973. So that show was dedicated to him. And we were joined by Antonio Tomas, who's a scholar of Cabral, and he wrote a new biography about him. And we spoke about his book and his social political thoughts. And also Ricky Shriok, who's a journalist based in Senegal. And if you missed that, please watch clips from that show on our YouTube channel. Check out the full episode on our Patreon and the rest of our archive. So today, though, we have a fantastic program for you. What we want to talk about is how Israel is courting the African continent and its heightened good for international legitimacy. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news, but a few days ago, the nominees for the Nobel Peace Prize were announced. And Jared Kushner, if you remember that name from somewhere, he's been nominated for the Peace Prize given his role in helping negotiate uh, Israel's normalization relations with a lot of Arab countries. So another place where Israel is looking to build ties with and normalize its relations with is Africa. And we want to talk to Yotan Kidron, who recently completed his PhD at University to ask him about Israel's strategy in Africa. And we're also going to have Matsidiso Motsoneng, who's a researcher and activist at the Afro Middle East Center in Johannesburg. And we want to understand from her what is to be done. If Israel is advancing on the continent, what can we do to resist that campaign? So um, I, I, I just muted myself for a second there because it's like a massive snowblower going past, past <laughs> the window. Um, but first, I mean, we always start the show by talking a bit about, you know, what, what people are talking about, like what's, what's, what are the big stories on, on, on the social media. Um, usually we pick the thing that, 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 is, that is important to us. But, Will, you found something on the Internet that you thought we should let people know about. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if, you, if you're paying attention, this is a big news story, right? And, I mean, it's fascinating, I think, the transformation of how we consume news lately where it instantly becomes sort of memefied. And a few days ago in Myanmar, a country in Southeast Asia, uh, it, it experienced a coup. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a turning point in Myanmar's recent history because since 2008, when Myanmar constructed a new constitution, it was supposed to undergo this democratization process. Uh, the short history of Myanmar as a country is that ever since it became independent of British rule, 
1947, it has been it has been under the leadership of successive military dictatorships. Uh, in 1990, people thought that was going to change after the results of popular protests for democracy. Myanmar had multi-party elections for the first time, and a party that was led by the now famous human rights advocate uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, the National League for Democracy, uh, it won that election, but then she was detained and the military dictatorship came back into power. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. And then fast forward to the new era in the 2000s, this democratization process began again. And in 20, uh, 2011, it sort of picked up pace. In 2015, there were elections for the first time and she came into power, became de facto leader. And last year, Myanmar had elections again and the National League for Democracy won by a landslide. I think it's something like 83% of the vote. And basically what the, the Burmese military is alleging, like someone in another part of the world, is that that election was fraudulent. And on the basis of, basis of that accusation, they seized power again. And they had the room to seize power again because the constitution, uh, which was crafted in 2008, gave a lot of power to the military. It gave them a quarter of the seats in parliament. It gave them the right to step in if they felt that democracy was under threat. And Aung San Suu Kyi has been detained. So there's this video that came out yesterday uh, of an aerobics instructor who I think part of her, her brand is that she goes in front of popular locations in, in, in Yangon, in Myanmar, and sort of conducts her aerobics lessons. And as she's conducting this aerobics lesson, the coup happens behind her. You see the military convoys pulling up into the streets and making their way to parliament. And uh, if Antoinette can play the video, I think it's, it's, it's already there. I think it's just, I don't know, I think it's the most remarkable thing that I've seen in a long time. For some reason, I can't stop watching it. And what I think is so interesting about it is that I think it's part of this sort of new genre of, of media that we're seeing emerge as of late, you know, people have smartphones, they record anything everywhere, you're being watched all the time, everybody knows this, but these sort of world historical moments being captured, these, these sort of concentrated periods of chaos, and then it's people just going about their lives normally, this sort of normalization of chaos. And I've been thinking about Jean Baudrillard, who's this, you know, political theorist who wrote uh, in the early 2000s, in the late 1990s, and spoke about hyperreality, which is this increased inability that we're going to have to distinguish sort of reality from simulation and sort of reality sorting starting to have the the characteristics of of dystopia but a kind of banal dystopia and yeah to me this is just the most fascinating thing that i've seen in a long time um, and it's now becoming the story of the coup it's not the coup it's this video of a person who is dancing in the middle of a coup well, because there's been, I think there's been a couple of coups there before, as you mentioned. Yeah, so yeah. people are kind of used to the idea that there's a, not not that it, it's we should think it's okay, but it's it's sort of predictable that the military is exactly. there like that. And now I think this kind of thing where it shows you the absurdity of the moment, like she's filming something mundane, and we see this. I saw somebody on Twitter. I don't know if it could be verified. Said that the lyrics that they are singing, I think is also sort of ironically um, critiquing somebody who wants to take over something. Um, and yeah. then you mocking that person. So there was a story in Al Jazeera where she was asked, did you, um, was your intent to, to mock 
the government or mock somebody. It's just like, no, 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 I'm just uh, making a performance. But the other thing quickly before we bring on our first guest, um, Will, which I know you want to say something about because I think, and, and maybe I'll add something at the end of it, has been the events in India with the massive strike of the last couple of weeks. Or is it, I think it's been a month or so, right? Maybe, yeah, it's been since like November, actually. And yeah, by Indian uh, farmers. And um, it's the, the thing that's been interesting is uh, there's these really beautiful videos of them uh, coming into, into Delhi, being welcomed by people, spraying confetti on them. Um, and it's an interesting moment uh, around sort of um, political struggle, like contemporary political struggle. We very rarely see these days a struggle by, by farmers. I mean, if it's, if it's a struggle by farmers, then it's a kind of reactionary struggle usually. I think the last time we may have seen something was during the, um, the beginnings of the anti-globalization movement or at the height of it. In France, I think there were farmers involved in the, how do you say, the anti-mondialisme. Um, but you, you haven't seen that kind of thing, I think, in Africa in a while. You've seen it maybe with, with the social revolutions of the 1970s, maybe kind of early 1980s, Thomas Sankara maybe. Jerry Rawlings's government, you know, Jerry Rawlings's revolution, you may have seen something like it. But more recently, most struggles, if we think, then we think of urban struggle. So this is an interesting moment. And there was one other thing we want to put on screen. It got to the point where Rihanna, who is for some people, I suppose, she's, you know, who's amused to some, some people, uh, she tweeted out, why aren't we uh, uh, talking about this? Why aren't we talking about this, this major moment, this struggle? Um, and I, I'm just curious, well, what your sort of feelings is about um, about this kind of this kind of rural-based struggle that pushed themselves to the front page. I mean, I think I think you've 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 said everything. And just to add to it, I think it's it's interesting to see that the peasant class is not obsolete. So we are under this impression that these new waves of struggles and mobilizations that we've seen happen all across the world since Occupy are primarily going to be led by people living in the urban areas and metropoles. And that sort of thinking sort of excludes a large portion of the global population, especially in the global South, the majority of whom are still based in rural areas. And as you say, it's sort of like a lot of people have given up on the prospects of politicizing people who hail from rural areas. And so to see how this collective action is being undertaken in an extremely effective way, in an extremely unified way, and they're not backing down. These agricultural laws, they're saying to the government, we want them completely repealed. We don't want negotiation for another year. We don't want special task teams to be forced. We want our demands to be met. I think just is really inspiring when it comes to thinking about the possibilities for collective action. When I think for the longest time, we felt as if the possibilities for collective action in this moment were extremely limited. And I think it just goes to show that we're not looking far enough in terms of whom the groups of people our politics can encompass. And we shouldn't dismiss uh, those people who are in rural areas working as farmers, fighting mining corporations, so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, I think that's an important thing to take away from this. You know, it's the biggest, I've seen that it's the biggest mobilization in possibly world history. So that's monumental. Right. I, we want to see more rural struggle if they, and get them on the program. In any case, Tony Karan actually points out in the comments, he points out an interesting point about um, Aung San Suu Kyi, like how um, she's very much viewed as a human rights icon of sorts, but she herself is, is 
problematic within the politics of of uh, of uh, Myanmar. Um, yeah, in, in what's suppressing the, the Muslim yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So you know, problematic. There. But in any case, a reminder to hit um, like and subscribe on our YouTube as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our Patreon, where you can access all of the shows, uh, clips, uh, and as well as the full um, the full episode and help fund Africa the country in general. <laughs> Will's pointing to the to the to the link. Now on to our first guest. I know people that that's why people are here um, rather than hearing us babbling on about <laughs> historical struggles. Our first guest is uh, Yotam Gidron. Uh, Yotam is a researcher uh, whose work focuses on authority, faith, migration, and conflicts. He has worked with civil society organizations in Israel and East Africa, and recently completed his PhD in African in African history at Durham University in the UK. And finally, he's published a new book, which is kind of also why he's here, on Israel's Africa strategy called Israel in Africa, Security, Migration, and Interstate Politics, which was published by Z Books uh, last year. So, Yotam, welcome to the show. Um, you're from Israel, and in your book, you begin by talking about how Africa isn't studied with interest in Israel and how Israel largely sees itself as part of the Western world. Um, so its interactions elsewhere are not acknowledged in ordinary um, consciousness. So how did you be, become interested in Israel's dealings in Africa, um, I mean, to the extent that you decided to write a book about it? Um, well, I think my story is partly entangled in the broader politics that the book tells. Um, I started working with refugees in Israel around 10 years ago. Um, yeah, perhaps a bit more. Refugees coming from the Horn of Africa, so South Sudanese, Eritreans, and Sudanese. Um, and I was a law student at the time. And I worked with a few civil society organizations on refugee rights issues. Um, and if you remember, or if you got to that point in the book, in 2012, Israel deported um, the South Sudanese community from Israel, so right after the independence of South Sudan. Um, and then quite quickly, I abandoned my uh, legal future or the future as a, maybe the future I didn't have as a lawyer and shifted to African history and African politics. And um, from that, so I, I started with a more migration part of the story, but then gradually um, began to look at the broader picture. And I mean, and the book came out as, as we just discussed very briefly before, um, just out of well, it was, it came from the International African Institute here in London as an idea and African arguments. Um, but it, the reason I wanted to write it is partly because there, there was no such book and it felt such a weird gap um, that no one is addressing. And in a, in a sense felt, you know, important. Um, now people kind of forgot about many of these things with COVID, but. I mean, you, you're exactly right and I mean, some of the conversation we were having just before the show was more about the lack of academic interest and the lack of scholarly effort invested into writing about this book. But I guess for, for the ordinary person, maybe to ask a more basic question, which is what exactly are Israel's interests in the African continent? Because I think that the way we understand politics is that, you know, Africa is not really sort of, people view Africa as not really being central to the foreign policy maneuvers of any of any country it's it's often just a matter of of concern as far as aid is is concerned or 
or I don't know, whatever other humanitarian, humanitarian missions, humanitarian yeah. missions, intervening in, in wars, terror, whatever, whatever, and so on. Why would why would Israel be interested in in Africa? Why does it want to? Why has it wanted to project its influence on the continent? Well, there are several answers, and it depends if we look at you know the the recent period or the longer history of that. But I think overall, some of the themes are very similar, and that is Israel's kind of, from the moment it began to exist as a state in 1948, this problematic position of, is it a legitimate entity, kind of a post-colonial state of a liberated people, or kind of a settler colonial state, um, a, you know, an imperial outpost, whichever way you want to call it, apartheid today. So, and for Israel, Africa was always kind of a mirror that allowed it to try to reshape the narrative around what is going on in Israel-Palestine. So in, in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, when many African countries gained independence, it was an attempt by Israel, there was an attempt, a very um, concentrated kind of effort to mobilize as many countries as possible in the continent to kind of fit Israel within the Afro-Asian world um, at the time. Largely because Israel needed not only the, you know, the legitimacy in terms of the rhetoric, but also because it needed votes in the UN um, to counter pressure around the issue of Palestinian refugees and the, the um, pressure from Arab countries. And then some of these issues, we see them kind of, kind of coming back throughout history. Um, so one of the things that pushed Israel back to Africa around a decade ago was again, Palestinian attempts uh, to mobilize the international community to recognize Palestinian statehood. Um, which kind of, uh, I think, reminded Israelis that they need this support, this diplomatic support from Africa. Um, it's not the only issue that made Israel kind of return to Africa recently, but it's one of them. Um, obviously, on a more strategic level, Israel borders Africa. Many of Israel's conflicts, you know, okay, Israel is no longer in conflict with Egypt, but it was for many years, and for many years it was its kind of main rival, uh, the main military power in the region threatening it. So it was always important for Israel to forge some military alliance within the immediate kind of neighborhood, and that includes the Horn of Africa, um, to kind of manage, manage the security situation in the Middle East. Um, in that sense, the Horn of Africa and, you know, Northeast Africa is immediately linked to whatever goes on in the Middle East. So in, in the beginning of the book, and I think this would be, for some readers, this might come as a surprise. Uh, you tell the story of how Israel, in the particularly in the 1960s, it starts to take Africa seriously. Um, and if you could just say a little bit about kind of like just some of the highlights of that, of that relationship. So I think in the book, you describe it as Israel's African adventure. Um, and as part of that, I think there's also some surprises in that story which is some African leaders that we that that we we have sort of popular accounts about them as sort of anti-imperialist, um, anti-Zionist, but in the book it actually turns out that they have their own peculiar history with Israel. And and you know after you sort of just get the general story, if you could just say something about just one or two of these, and I think in particular the ones I was not surprised by, but you know because also they take the sort of non, uh, what is it the sort of you know uh, third world non-aligned non of Nkrumah. And even Neherere. So, could you just say the general kind of Israeli approach 
you sort of mentioned already, it's like it sees itself as, as in the same position as these, these newly independent African Asian states. But just kind of like, what was Israel trying to do? And then secondly, just say a little bit, as I said, about these kind of, uh, if you could sort of talk about two of these, Nerere and Kruma. Well, yeah. So on a practical level, partly the tension was, you know, between Israel and Egypt at the time, who is going to kind of shape what sort of, what, how will African, pan-Africanism will look in the, these years, you know, because this is exactly the years of African independence. And the, the, there was no, the organization of African unity was not yet established. And part of the question was, are we going to kind of mobilize African countries to support Israel in this struggle, or are they going to sign up to the Arab side? And that was, there was this kind of race between Israel and Egypt um, to mobilize whichever countries they could. And Kuruma was one of the main figures to support Israel um, at the time, um, to support Israel's efforts in Africa. So Ghana was kind of Israel's main gate to Africa, even though it had relations with other countries. Um, and what Israel mainly did in the, this very short period of the late 50s and early 60s is invest quite a lot in state-led initiatives and development. So technical support, some arms sales, but not as, as significant as they became later. Uh, cooperations between Israeli government companies and uh, African governments in all sorts of development projects. Um, and it was a kind of a concentrated effort that Israel didn't have the resources to maintain for a long time, but it was very important to work through these very significant figures like Nkrumah and Nyerere at the time um, to mobilize this support for Israel. Tanzania was also important and that also links a bit to what we were we mentioned we mentioned briefly earlier um because israel had this double position where it wanted to maintain good ties with its with western countries and with south africa but at the same time it wanted to show african countries that actually it it has a place in this sort of afro-asian solidarity movement um, and that meant that israel tried throughout the this period to support uh different liberation movements and it's almost a kind of an ironic situation when Israel had, you know, it had ties with South Africa, but it also supported some African um, liberation movements through the, their offices in um, what was Tanganyika or Tanzania later. Um, ZANU, ZANU, Frelimo, um, and some South African movements. I mean, some Israeli diplomats still mention often that Israel trained um, at some point in Ethiopia in the 60s. Um, so it was really important for Israel to try to kind of dance in these two weddings at the time. And just, just as a sort of follow-up to this, there's this kind of Israel and, and these newly independent, if you want, black African countries. And then throughout this new foray, sort of mention them, there's South Africa. Can you just say something about that long relationship? Um, I think earlier we, was, we, we sort of noted before the program that I think you, you, you corrected me, I think it's 1953 DF Milan, visits um, Israel, the newly independent state of Israel. Then, as you said, Israel is playing, Israel is, you know, kind of aware in its struggle with Egypt. It's playing its uh, rhetorical game regarding independence, some support. Where, how does South Africa fit into this? Because later on, we also know, uh, you know, John Foster goes there to visit Israel. He's, he becomes the, the prime minister of South Africa in the late 1960s and later on the state president in the 70s um, and South Africa um, Israel and South Africa make alliances around nuclear um, nuclear weapons. 
can you just kind of sketch the, the this kind of relationship with South Africa if it's as straightforward as people think it is? Well, I mean, well, I mean, I, I meant apartheid South Africa when I said South Africa. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think you know there was this short period where Israel tried to uh, to position itself as one of these Afro-Asian countries and try to be to express, you know, even in the UN kind of with rhetorical statements, express um, kind of its opposition to apartheid. But then it was already in the mid 60s that kind of the money for this enterprise ran out. And it was clear that Israel is losing this game, I think, with, um, with the Arab world, with the influence of Egypt and um, Nasser. And there was a short period when I think it was clear that Israel is not going to win this game. And then came the 67 war and the whole thing kind of fell apart. because Israel could no longer claim that it's not an occupying force, that it's not a colonial state. I mean, the, the kind of whatever war of propaganda was clearly lost um, at that point. And Israel maintained its ties with, Af with most um, African countries until the 73 war but relations were already kind of falling apart and there wasn't much, uh, it was clear that Israel, I think it's increasingly clear that Israel is not going to be able to salvage that. And this is when gradually the, the alliance with South Africa um, kind of emerged. It just, I think, became clear that this alliance worths much more to Israel strategically, militarily, than all the you know, small African countries that may or may not support Israel in the UN, it, it became increasingly clear that they will not support Israel. Um, and then in the 73 war, most countries uh, cut their ties with Israel and then Israel became kind of an open uh, ally of apartheid South Africa. Um, yeah, openly an ally of apartheid South Africa and secretly quite a significant military ally. So you you mentioned you mentioned the seventy three war the sixty seven war happened before that and then the seventies was this period of instability globally not just geopolitically in terms of all the conflict that was happening but also the radical social and economic changes taking place as well so the rise of neoliberalism and then as we enter the new decade uh, I mean the new as we enter the nineties rather you know. It was, to give the, the the abridged history, the Berlin Wall falls. It's the end of the end of it's the end of history and this new period of peace and so on and so forth. So to jump forward to the present, I mean, you talk about in the book how something changes, where previously Israel's activities were largely conducted at the level of the state and it was engaging with other states and it was largely articulated as these modernization projects to build states. And then from the 1990s into the 2000s, we see more private actors like security agencies and companies playing a dominant role in how Israel's diplomacy plays out. So, and you, you describe it as, as, as it resulting in a kind of clandestine diplomacy. So could you unpack that for us? Because, I mean, as you point out, it's difficult in this new sort of uh, way of doing things to point out where the state's interests end and where private interests begin. So, so how do we see the sort of privatization of Israeli foreign policy? How did that kind of play out? Yeah, I think there's there's a dynamic here between securitization and privatization. Um, 
and historically they kind of bleed into each other because it's already already in the 60s um you would see that increasingly security actors have more and more power in determining how israel's relationship with countries in africa evolve um you see kind of increasingly the mossad doing things behind the back of other actors this this defense ministry doing things selling arms initiating cooperations between the back of other actors um and i mean i think the clear example is the israel's support to south sudanese rebels um in the 60s and it's a clear example because in the early 60s the rebels came and said they won't support and israel said no that's not something we are interested in but by the late 60s where it became more important for israel the mossad took over and just um, provided this support but then after most countries cut ties with israel obviously there is no um you know the, the diplomatic relations kind of either disappear or operate in a very quiet manner but many of the private actors that were already operating in africa can stay um and continue to do business in the continent and many of the you know different security cooperations wherever they exist and they they are not necessarily that strong in many countries can continue as well so places like kenya ethiopia security actors could have you know quite close relationships with governments that openly resisted or said they are not they have no relations with israel um so there's this this kind of intelligent security uh, relationships that exist beneath the surface but what you also have is increasingly actors that were part of some kind of an israeli formal presence in africa either diplomatic or security that once they finish their job stay around to be kind of private contractors uh, advisors of all sorts intermediaries um, and you see that in many countries um increasingly throughout the 80s and 90s and whenever israel kind of tries to rebuild its relationship with african countries these are the networks that are already there for it to do that um rather than build again kind of an institutionalized state to state relationship you build on these kind of privatized various different networks that look quite differently in different countries but what they have in common is that they are extremely informal um often have to do with different industries security industries mining um things like that and that is something that we see shaping israel's presence in africa until today but at the same time and and i have one more question before we bring the the other guests on at the same time with netanyahu there there's been there's there, there's also been like an increase in this kind of state to state right he's gone on these diplomatic trips and 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 i think in the book you read about you opened the book with the with the inauguration of uh, uh, Uru Kenyatta after the disputed election and he goes on to Guinea Senegal etc but the question the, the question before we go to the next session hopefully you'll stick around is this question about um it's not a one way kind of story <laughs> at some level there's also africans who who could get something out of their relationship with israel like they're also active agents in this relationship right um and i think um you mentioned in the book I, i think at least a different you know different sets of actors like evangelical movements pentecostal pentecostalist um movements um and then there's a so they you know they have their own ideology of how they think the world works and how the world will end um how conflict will be resolved um and at the same time the israeli government gets something out of them you you mentioned in the book also like different Afri african leaders who 
who use Israel for their own geostrategic interests where they are, their own needs, whether it will be uh, around military, whether it's um, you know techn technology, uh, industrial, uh, agricultural, etc. And then finally, I think um, there's the question of uh, Israel. Israel has a migrant crisis, and you have African countries are now solving that, helping helping Israel solve Israel. What you might what Israel might refer to as you know the infiltrators, or well, the state sort of official rhetoric. Um, can you just say a little bit about? Those people like these, and I know it's a big, it's a big answer with stress for time. You mentioned quite a lot of things. We cannot let it. We cannot pretend like this is a one-way relationship. There are Africans here with their own interests, and they went into a relationship with Israel too. Yeah, first, but though you mentioned the kind of more state-to-state -state dynamics of the last couple of years, and I think one important thing that we need to take into account is that. Yes, Netanyahu is very good in doing PR and doing Hasbara and, you know, providing a narrative um, or kind of consolidating a story about what is going on. Once we look behind the kind of, you know, the rhetoric, I don't think we find a lot of state-to-state -state interactions and cooperation in the last couple of years. If you look at how much money was Israel willing to put in its uh, so-called return to Africa, you don't, you hardly find anything. Um, so it's kind of, it's an attempt to push private actors, um, uh, business people, businesses, uh, different kind of corporations that are mostly economic, um, including security sales into Africa. But you don't really find um, in Israel's engagement, the sort of institutionalized, you know, AIDS development, all of these things that you would see in, you know, European countries, uh, or even not state to state kind of military cooperation. That's also very limited. So yeah, but then on the other side of these relationships, um, yes, I mean, there are different kind of vectors that shaped why African countries look at Israel as a potential useful ally. Um, and you mentioned Pentecostalism, which I think is extremely influential at this current phase of Israel-Africa relations because of the increasing influence of Pentecostal movements on politics in so many countries. Um, when we talk about Israel's kind of return to Africa in the last decade, um, so of course there are the Israeli interests of the Palestinians and Iran and you know migration issues, but there's also the clear shift and the clear movement of, I think, the kind of Pentecostalization of politics in many countries. And the important thing here is that Pentecostal movements are usually very open to endorsing Zionist uh, theologies. Not necessarily because of an end, kind of an end of time scenarios and you know dispensationalist worldviews, but also because of the emphasis on um, kind of divine blessing and whoever blesses the, the idea that whoever blesses Israel and does things for Israel will be blessed, uh, which I think resonates quite strongly with Pentecostal um, ways of understanding the Bible. Um, and then, lastly, migration was. I think one of the things that kind of pushed Israel back to Africa um, over the last decade, uh, in addition to you know the geopolitics and the Palestinian issue, the arrival of African refugees to Israel in the late 2000s, and then in, increasingly Israel looks for partners in Africa that will be willing uh, to take these people back. Um, so Israel from the late 2000s started reaching out to different countries in Africa, often via different intermediaries, diplomats, whoever is there, business people offering all sorts of deals and bargains um, for
for sending these people back. And we, we saw these things materialize eventually with Uganda and Rwanda agreeing uh, to take, well, South Sudan agreed to take its own citizens immediately after independence. Um, and it also, you know, had kind of bought considerable security, um, different arms from Israel. But then Rwanda and Uganda, two other countries that developed quite a close relationship with Israel, um, agreed to take refugees as well from 2013. So we're now going to, thanks for that, Yotam. We're now going to bring in uh, our we next- We forever, but we have to. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, need to, we need to bring in Matsiriso Mutsuaneng to join the conversation. Uh, Matsiriso is a researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center in Johannesburg. And before this, she worked as a research and analyst at the Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute. She's currently completing a Master's of Arts in Politics and IR at the University of Johannesburg, and her interests include gender, geopolitics, foreign policy, and security studies. So, Matsiriso, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to start with, with this sort of element to the conversation we're having about the rise of Pentecostalism, and Yotam just touched on it now. And here in South Africa, we're seeing that because uh, a, a scandal that happened very recently was South Africa's Chief Justice, Mokhweng Mokhweng, appearing on a webinar organized by the Jerusalem Post, where he made remarks to the effect of suggesting that an anti-Israeli posture would bring great curses to the nation, and it's improper and incorrect and unchristian to criticize Israel is effectively the extent of what he was suggesting. And I mean, when this happened, I mean, I was kind of, I was taken aback. I think a lot of people were taken aback, but this is, this is proving to be a very sort of pernicious influence that is really starting to, to come onto the scene. And what do you think is sort of leading to the rise of, of Christian Zionism playing a dominant role in shaping people's attitudes about Israel and Palestine? I think the globally, um, as Yotam said in the previous conversation, um, the the dominant um you know increase of um pentecostal um movements christian evangelical um churches having a great influence in politics globally we've seen with for example the the election campaign of donald trump that has um resonated quite you know um beyond even just us borders on this issue of supporting israel and bringing that into the political sphere. Um, in the South African case, I mean, the comments by the chief justice of, you know, the highest court in the land, a constitutional democracy, um, effectively telling people not to criticize Israel because, you know, the wrath of God will fall on you, um, was laughable, but very painful at the same time, because you have this, what we saw as a very, you know, a great man, a, a person who represents values for, for democracy, human rights, etc., sitting at the highest court in the land. And I mean, we know South Africa's constitution for its own, you know, um, championing of human rights, etc. Um, and for him to come out and, and, and say this, especially in, in light of the fact that we have a lot of activists, you know, in South Africa supporting Palestinians, um, playing a big role in Palestinian solidarity that have been um, literally crucified by the Israeli lobby in this country, um, to the effect of even being taken to court for things like hate, hate speech, being anti-Semitic, 
etc. Um, you know, the case in point that's very important is the Bongani Masuku case. Um, and having a court judge come out so vehemently supporting Israel and, you know, linking this to this religious um, narrative in this country just kind of mirrored um, the, the point at which we find ourselves in this country. Um, I know as an activist in, in, in South Africa supporting and advocating for Palestinian struggle, um, we find the, the, these kinds of narratives. There's a huge pushback. And I think the Israeli lobby um, has found a way to permeate in, in these spaces um, and push the narrative of you know, supporting Israel is um, basically going according to the word of God. Um, I mean, I had to have a long conversation with my, you know, people from my own family, friends of mine who were very like, no, but what do you mean we can't, what do you mean, you you know, Israel is an apartheid state? What do you mean um, we should be protesting against Israel? These are God's chosen people kind of thing. So this this narrative is really growing, and and because that you know Palestinian solidarity in the continent has been very um, you know I think increasingly weakening um, because again of the you know very um, increasingly um, great support that African states and African leaders are showing towards Israel, um, it hasn't been pushed back as much as it it should be, and there isn't even you know, what I can call a vocabulary um, for many activists in the country, in, in the continent, even in the country, to be able to educate and, and form a narrative that is um, perhaps I could say um, familiar um, to the Pentecostal movements, to these Christian evangelical movements, to engage about the political issue that comes with, you know, supporting the state of Israel. But doesn't this all, this all probably also reflects, I, I suppose, changes within these African states themselves, which is that the, the social and political elites at the top who were often associated with liberation movements or nationalist struggles, they were on the side of Palestinians. That pro, those projects, well, the political project of that, of that movement usually ran into the ground or into crisis, neoliberalism, structural adjustment, etc. And so it's very hard for... And also in the and in and in the in the process, regular people, their understanding of how the world works and what is going wrong for them, they started, you know, they they what explains the world is it's it's um they're not doing right by God or something. And if that falls within their theology that Israel is part of that setup, it's very hard, I suppose, to break that. So my question really on that is does does you you mentioned there that, that activists don't have a vocabulary. And maybe this is my question. Does BDS, for example, I mean, this is the predominant movement, right? Who's in a sort of war of, I suppose, a, a propaganda war or diplomatic war even with Israel. Do they have a strategy to talk to evangelicals about this or have they just sort of given up? I mean, again, from your experience in South Africa. Okay, and um, thank you. I think um, just, just to go back a little on the issue of liberation movement and you know, the resonation with the Palestinian struggle in the country. Um, what we've seen is that, you know, African youth in, in the face of, you know, rising economic hardships, political instability, you know, youth unemployment, et cetera, what we've seen with um, the Arab uprisings, um, you know, the 
civil wars in, in, you know, in countries such as West Africa, Central Africa, etc. Um, there is this, 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 um, you know, huge shift of youth um, not identifying with their own national liberal liberation struggles in their own countries. Um, so that 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 also um, translates into connecting with other um, struggles for national liberation, the Palestinian struggle in case in point. Um, you know, the old liberation movements, the likes of ZANU, the likes of um, the PAC and the ANC in South Africa, still very much, you know, hold the issue of the Palestinian struggle. It's very much engraved in, the, in their political um, policies, their political strategies, um, but this still does not reach uh, um, the, the youth, which of course, I mean, the, the entire continent is, is, is largely a youth population, which should, um, you know, ideally be playing a big role in pushing for the Palestinian um, issues to continue being part of our discourse. But this is not happening, as I said, because of the political instability, the economic issues that many young people in this continent face. Um, what we're seeing with, with BDS is, of course, um, I mean, great successes that BDS has had. Um, in the continent, South Africa is, is a huge case in point to how the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement has had um, you know, a great influence in lobbying government in in in, in being able to have and continue um, a diplomatic um, support for Palestine um, continuously and sustained um, in terms of government policies, and that has largely been because of the ANC being a national liberation movement, still being in power, and as I said, having the roots. Um, with you know the PLO part in the past in the 1960s, etc. Um, those links still continue to facilitate some of the successes and great achievements that the BDS movement has had in the country, in the continent, to a great to a certain extent. Um, what has been unfortunately um, a, a big, I think, obstacle in this is that. Um, you know, with, with growing authoritarianism um, in the country, different governments um, in this continent and um, becoming increasingly autocratic, the civil society space is also, um, you know, becoming very narrow. It's also becoming very stifled, not a lot of space available for, you know, act civil society actors, activists to come out and lobby governments and push for government um, to be more robust and radical on its position um, to support Palestinians and to, you know, issues such as the labeling of, you know, Israeli um, products from occupied territories, et cetera, et cetera, which could, you know, see great successes if the civil society space was available for activists to be able to do this. So, the, the thing, um, sorry. Sorry. The yeah, yeah. Labeling, yeah. The thing about labeling products is, I think that's a sort of very middle class um, uh, politics where this is my comment about like, how, how do you talk to China? But I think in your time's book, he writes about um, kind of the influence of somebody like Kenneth Mweshwe, Mweshwe who was the head of the African Christian Democratic uh, Party. I want to tell me if you could say a little bit more about kind of how Israel operates in a country like South Africa, because, you know, as we, as we mentioned, as we sort of get the impression, South Africa is a bit of an outlier in this story. As a state, it has a different relationship to Israel. I think it has a, a diplomatic representative in Palestine, if I'm not mistaken, and in, and in Israel. Or it, uh, maybe you can explain that situation to me. 
Um, and then I think, but more than that, I think just kind of like the the, the work of, 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 if you want, Hasbara in South Africa is it's actually quite organized, right? Scholarships, trips. Um, I think in the book you mentioned West West's daughter goes to, to Israel regularly. I, I understand that members of the ANC Youth League have gone to Israel on trips. Performers, popular performers like Black Coffee, the South African performer, performed in, in Israel. Can you just unpack this this kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and maybe maybe as part of your answer, has it been that there was at some point um, at a mass level a sort of understanding of like this is an occupation that's happening in Israel or was this mostly like the politics of South African elites? I'm not sure I got the last. Well, the last one is really kind of like, so in South Africa, I think there's always a perception that the idea that, that uh, the, you know, South Africans or black South Africans are on the side of the Palestinians, that is assumed. But as we're sort of learning now, it's a little bit more complicated, right? There's evangelical Christians. And my question is like, has that, is, 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 is that necessarily the case? Or was it that it was always perhaps much more a sort of activist core, a layer of people who are a sort of literally lead people, you know, people who are politically involved, people who are members of the ANC, as Matsudiso sort of explained. Um, is, is, it, is, it, is it more complicated like that? Well, there are a few things here. And one of them is I think South Africa is very different from other countries in its relationship with Israel, both for historical reasons of apartheid, but also in terms of the Christian landscape in South Africa that is a bit different from some of the other countries. Um, because in many West African countries, but also in East Africa, you see that big Pentecostal actors that kind of emerged starting from the 80s and kind of had increasingly a greater influence on the political sphere from the 90s, uh, 1990s and 2000s um, are the big supporters of Israel. And their influence kind of extends far beyond Pentecostal churches to you know the Anglican church, the Catholic church, whoever. Um, so many people sign up to Zionist theologies, even if in theory their churches are not um, Pentecostal. Whereas in South Africa, the biggest, and I think, yeah, there are, there are different born again Pentecostal churches, evangelical churches supported by the US um, mainly that are pro-Israel in South Africa, but there's also the Zion Christian church that is not usually seen as part of the Pentecostal kind of landscape or is not exactly, but is quite clearly pro-Israel um, in its attitude. And it's it's been, kind of a, a gate for Israeli diplomacy in South Africa to influence um, the kind of, you know, the way people understand Israel. And, and obviously these actors have a huge influence on the, you know, how people, everyday people think about Israel, not only in South Africa, but across Africa. Um, so that's one thing that makes South Africa a bit different. I think also in terms of the BDS and their resistance Probably South Africa is the only country, and I'm not talking here about you know North African Arab countries, where this resistance has a clear uh, impact on kind of the way politics work. You don't see that, obviously. I mean, okay, sometimes you see that in Nigeria, a bit in Ghana, um, but it's 
when you know if Israeli diplomats speak about people's general uh, attitude towards Israel, then it's extremely positive across Africa. And it's it's rare that there will be a kind of a controversy as it was in South Africa around, you know, uh, was it black coffee performing in Israel was quite a controversial issue. Um, you wouldn't probably find this sort of controversy happening in other countries, um, you know, in Kenya or Rwanda or Ethiopia. Nobody will um, say anything probably. So in that sense, I think the attitude in South Africa is quite unique. But I'm, I'm almost forgot what the beginning of this question was. Um, I mean, can I, I have a, a follow-up and, and Masiriso and, and your time, you can both answer here. I'm interested to know what is, what is Israel's perception of South Africa at the moment? Um, I think as this conversation evolves, we, we're, we're getting this picture of South Africa as being a, a country of strategic interests in large part because of South Africa's experience of apartheid. And the charge of Israel being an apartheid state is advanced predominantly because it's legitimated by South Africans who say, yes, it conforms to the experience that we had and the definition that was helped generated by South Africans is one that South Africans speak authoritatively on of Israel conforming to that definition. So I'm interested to know what is Israel making of all of this? How does it understand its own attitude to South Africa and and how it should operate in relation to South Africa as far as its own interests are concerned? Um, well, I think you know Israel is very much aware um, of you know the as as I said the the strong. Um, links to the Palestinian struggle, to the South African experience. Um, and they, you know, a large part of it is perhaps accepted, but of, that doesn't mean that they stop, right? Um, so economic diplomacy still continues. We know of the recent cases of um, the Israeli um, um, company buying our our um, clover company here in South Africa and, and the, the huge controversy that that cost, um, but also because South Africa, Israel has, you know, over the past, since I think the post-democratic state used South Africa as a sort of a landing base to the other African African countries, um, especially under the, um, you know, after the SPEAR initiative under the Tabumbeki administration, um, that obviously was a dismal fail, um, but the Israelis used that opportunity, especially, um, to court other um, African countries, but also establish its economic links, et cetera, and it's um, facilitate other ways of lobbying the ANC government and other people in government for its support. Um, but in, under the Zuma administration, because of what, you know, what became a, um, an, a, an increasingly silent um, approach of South African terms of foreign policy in the continent, Israel has used South Africa to um, you know, its embassy, its actors in South Africa to go out in in other countries, neighboring countries in the in in in, in SADC, um, countries in the continent who have seen South Africa's declining position in terms of influence in regional bodies such as the AU and SADC to try and and again push um, for its interests, etc. Um, but I mean, they still maintain an embassy in Pretoria, um, despite the fact that you know South Africa downgraded its embassy in Tel Aviv and recalled its ambassador. Um, 
but you know they they very much know that this this the the, the approach in South Africa, especially from a government point of view, it's always trying to see this sort of a balancing act of some sort, and they're really taking advantage of that. Um, with with the many countries in Africa sort of going on their own, the likes of you know um, what we've seen in Malawi with the the election of President um, Chakwera, who's a Christian evangelist, um, the likes of and the President Munangwago, who's also trying to get close to Israel, really going against what has been a long, you know, standing position from SADC, et cetera. Um, you know, South Africa's lobbying efforts at the AU, for example, have not really materialized to the point that they want. There's strong voices coming out, the likes of Rwanda, the likes of Kenya, Uganda, et cetera, supporting Israel and really actively lobbying for Israel to kind of get the observer status at the AU. Um, that they've been really seeking um, for quite a long time. I think South Africa's, um, you know, silence um, in in that space in foreign policy and trying to push for issues on the, on the continental level has created this vacuum for Israel to really get in and push for other actors in in the continent. Sean, Sean you're on mute. Your time. Do you wanna? Do you wanna? Um... Add anything to that before I ask a, a question? There were so many things to say. Um, there always, always is. Yeah, I know, and I'm looking at the clock. But um, just one thing on the beginning of the answer on the kind of economic ties, because that applies to everywhere in Africa. And I think we spoke about the kind of you know political issues that drive Israel to look for support in Africa. But we also shouldn't exaggerate what that actually means. Um, Few African countries have enough weight in the international sphere to actually influence significant, um, you know, significantly the situation in the Middle East for sure. And sometimes they do when, you know, suddenly they have a seat in the Security Council or they have a significant influence in the African Union, then Israel needs them. But otherwise, um, the economic um, interests are always there. And which, you know, South Africa is one of the largest. Um, Partners, economic partners Israel has in the continent, and it doesn't really matter what the government thinks about the occupation. Um, and that's true for other countries, Angola, that may have may not have a very close relationship with Israel, but also has close economic ties. Um, that that links for another thing, but I don't remember what exactly it was. So go for it. <laughs> Back to you. I have a question with that, um, which, which, as you know, in this program, we always get back to football. We always talk about football. I know both of you. Um, I don't know about your time, but he it's likes football. And she's like, oh, no. football. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this question that increasingly the the battles over, over for example, you know, the struggle for around sort of the Palestinian statehood or um, right political self-determination, et cetera, that these things are being fought now, it seems that the, when we mentioned BDS and, and the comments people are talking about, increasingly it's like social movements, trade unions, like the battle, those kind of battles. I mean, I'm not, so my question is really like, in Africa, are those, are the battles over Israel-Palestine, are they played also by social movements? Like what social movements are involved in those struggles? And related to that, this is why I said football, um, the sports boycott was really, Significant in the in the struggle in South Africa, has 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 the question of Israel's participation in international 
sporting events is that is that coming up in these popular struggles or or what 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 direction or tone do these struggles take and either of you can answer i've been preoccupied with that point i missed last time can i get back to it <laughs> i think Part of the reason these battles trickle down to civil society actors and, you know, you see increasingly governments in Africa uninterested in the Palestinian issue. Um, we can speak about the ideological kind of interest, but there's also, you know, part of the success of the last decade of the Israeli government has been fracturing Palestinian uh, leadership and support anyway, like within Israel-Palestine. And that links back to, you know, the Abraham normalization agreements and all of that. In a sense, for governments around the world to stand behind the Palestinian issue became an, not a very viable um, position at the international level. And this is why I think you see increasingly less government interested in holding that position because it's, you know, no one stands behind it anymore or increasingly fewer actors stand behind it. And that has also economic implications. Um, and that might be one reason we see the, the battle over these things kind of leaking to civil society actors and to questions that are more in principle rather than, um, you know, questions that have a pragmatic impact on the situation in Israel-Palestine. Kind of symbolic questions about recognition, about, you know, how we label things, um, how we call Israel, whether it's apartheid or not. Um, I think just to come in there, um, I mean, as William said, when you spoke about soccer, my eyes just like really came out. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of things like, you know, sports boycott, etc., um, in South Africa, the, the civil society space supporting Palestinian solidarity has been quite vocal about this. Um, I know when an Israeli um, hockey team, I think, came to play in the country, there were, you know, large protests and, um, you know, really a, a big pushback against this. Again, it's because South Africa comes from a place where civil society is quite, um, you know, amenable for, for actors to come out and, and do these kinds of things. Whereas in other parts of the continent, the, the shrinking space for civil society is, is stifling some of these, these these um, efforts. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen um, because of the country's, you know, long um, uh, history with national liberation movements that were, you know, saw themselves to a large extent as socialist, etc. The, you know, the formation of trade unions, um, you know, socialist um, parties or parties that see themselves as socialist or left-leaning parties that are still very vocal on the issue of Palestine and really trying to bring that um, to the foray, but um, because, um, again, they're almost always in the minority, um, that has made, you know, um, to the ability to branch out in, in things like the sports boycott, cultural boycotts, et cetera, may, has made it um, increasingly hard um, for activists to, to go into these spaces and, and also, you know, try and form and shape and direct discourse around um, the issue of supporting Palestine and the Palestinian struggle in the continent. And on, on that note, I mean, we could, we could talk for forever on this. I mean, this is, 
this is just the largest topic and I'm just sitting here thinking about all the things I wish I'd asked and should have asked, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to have you guys back soon. And there's a ton of questions. There's a ton of questions. We want to apologize also to our audience on Facebook, uh, Twitter. People just have questions that they want us to ask, but, you know, we're dealing here with, uh, with time and we can only ask so many things. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you so much to, to both of you. Thank you so much, Matsiriso. Thank you so much, Yotam. If you can, be sure to purchase Yotam's book, to continue the conversation with yourself. Send him an email if you have any questions that come up. Send Matsidiso an email, perhaps. Um, we're so grateful to have had both of you on today's show. Thank you so much to our magnificent producer, Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town. This is the end of today's program. Catch us next week at the same time, 5 p.m. GMT, 7 p.m. Central African time, and 12 p.m. if you're in America or somewhere. Uh, <laughs> like um, and Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember that our struggle for liberation anywhere in the world is incomplete until the Palestinian liberation struggle happens. So on that note, see you all next week. Bye-bye.